To kick off the week, I have a letter that dropped over the weekend from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. In this, he answers his critics. Now, I'm going to have a link to where you can read this for yourself on the sources blog at returntotradition.org. And a link to that is in the description box, as always. Um, he makes reference here at the beginning to Father Thomas Wynandy, Father Raymond D'Souza, and some others who have uh, written a series of letters on, uh, well, Vigano's alleged schismatic tendencies. I can record and read those for you for later in the week if you like. Of course, in the Catholic Family News article, it has a direct link to those as well. But let me know if you'd like me to record and read those for you, and I'll try to get those up by mid to late week assuming nothing preempts them. Enough for me. The letter from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano in response to his critics. A few days ago, shortly after another article of a similar note was published by Father Thomas Wynandy, Father Raymond J. D'Souza wrote a commentary called Is Archbishop Vigano's Rejection of the Second Vatican Council Promoting Schism? The writer's thought, it, thought is immediately expressed in the subtitle in his latest testimony, the former nuncio, holds a position contrary to the Catholic faith on the authority of ecumenical councils. I can understand that in many ways my interventions can provoke no little annoyance with the supporters of Vatican II, and that questioning their idol is reason enough to merit the most severe canonical sanctions after shouting against schism. Their annoyance is combined with a certain spite in seeing that, despite my choice not to appear in public, my interventions are arousing interest and are fueling a healthy debate about the council, and more generally, about the crisis of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. I do not claim myself to have the merit of having initiated this dispute. Other eminent prelates and high-profile intellectuals before me have highlighted critical issues that need a solution. Others have shown the causal relationship between Vatican II and the present apostasy. Faced with these numerous and well-argued critiques, no one has ever proposed valid responses or shared solutions. On the contrary, in defense of the conciliar totem, the only response is the delegitimization of the interlocutor, his ostracization, and the generic accusation of wanting to attack the unity of the Church. And this last accusation is all the more grotesque when we see how obviously canonically cross-eyed the accusers are. They unleash the malleus hereticorum, the hammer of heretics, against those who defend Catholic orthodoxy while they bow down in reverence to ecclesiastics, religious SJ, and theologians who daily attack the integrity of the depositum fide. The painful sufferings of so many prelates, among whom Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre undoubtedly stands out, confirm that even in the absence of specific accusations, there are those who succeed in using the canonical norm as the tool of persecuting the good, and at the same time are careful not to use it with real schismatics and heretics. How can we forget in this regard those theologians who had been suspended from teaching, removed from seminaries, or hit by censures from the Holy Office, and who, precisely because of their merits, deserve to be called to the Council as consultors and experts, those rebels of liberation theology who were admonished under the pontificate of John Paul II and rehabilitated by Bergoglio must also be included, not to mention the protagonists of the Amazon Synod and the bishops of the Synodal Path, promoters of a heretical and schismatic German national church, without omitting the bishops of the patriotic Middle Kingdom sect recognized by the agreement between the Vatican and their regime. 
Father D'Souza and Father Wynandi without entering into the merits of the arguments I have presented, which both of them disdainfully described as intrinsically schismatic, ought to have the fairness to read my interventions before censuring my thoughts. In them they would find mention of the painful labor that led me to understand, only in the last few years, that I have been misled by those in authority whom I never could imagine would have been able to betray those who placed their trust in them. I do not think that I am the only one who has understood this deception and denounced it. Laity, clerics, and prelates have found themselves in the painful situation of having to recognize a fraud that was cunningly hatched, a fraud that consisted, in my opinion, of having resorted to a council to give apparent authority to the initiatives of the innovators in obtaining obedience from the clergy and the people of God. And this obedience was demanded by the pastors, allowing no exception, in order to demolish the Church of Christ from within. I have written and declared many times that it is precisely in virtue of this falsification that the faithful, respectful to the authority of the hierarchy, did not dare to obey, disobey en masse the imposition of heterodox doctrines and Protestantized rites. Among other things, this upheaval was not accomplished all at once, but according to a process by stages in which the novelties introduced ad experimentum were later made a universal norm, with ever tighter turns of the screw. And I have likewise reiterated several times that if the errors and equivocal points of Vatican II had been formulated by a group of German or Dutch bishops without giving them the mantle of authoritativeness of an ecumenical council, they would probably have merited the condemnation of the Holy Office, and their writings would have ended up on the index. Perhaps it was precisely for this reason that those who upset the preparatory schemas of the council took care, during the reign of Paul VI, to weaken the Supreme Congregation and abolish the Index Laborium Prohibitorium, on which in other times their own writings would have appeared. D'Souza and Wynandi apparently believe that it is not possible to change one's opinion, and that it is preferable to remain in error rather than retrace one's steps. Yet this attitude is very strange. Multitudes of cardinals, priests, and bishops, and clerics, monks and nuns, theologians and moralists, laity and Catholic intellectuals all felt compelled, in the name of obedience to the hierarchy, to renounce the Tridentine Mass and to see it replaced with a rite copied from Cramner's Book of Common Prayer, to throw away treasures of doctrine, morality, spirituality, and an inestimable artistic and cultural patrimony, obscuring 2,000 years of magisterium in the name of a council, which moreover intended to be pastoral and not dogmatic. They heard it said that the conciliar church was finally open to the world, stripped of hateful post-Tridentine triumphalism, medieval dogmatic encrustations, liturgical trappings, and the strange morality of St. Alphonsus, the notionism of the catechism of St. Pius X, and the clericalism of the Pacellian Curia. We were asked to renounce everything in the name of Vatican II. Yet if repudiating the pre-conciliar Catholic Church by embracing the conciliar renewal was hailed as a gesture of great maturity, a prophetic sign, a way of keeping step with the times and ultimately something inevitable and incontestable, Today, repudiating a failed experiment that led the church to collapse is considered a sign of incoherence of or, in, or of insubordination, according to the adage, no going back, of the innovators. At that time, the, the change was said to be salutary and necessary, but today the restoration is called harmful and a harbinger of division. Back then, we were told we could and should deny the glorious past of the church in the, the name of the aggiornamento. Today, questioning a few decades of deviation is considered schismatic. And what is even more grotesque is that the defenders of the council are simultaneously so flexible with those who deny the preconciliar magisterium, while stigmatizing with the Jesuitical and infamous qualification of rigid.
those who, out of consistency with the same magisterium, cannot accept ecumenism and dialogue, the new ecclesiology, and the liturgical reform stirred by Vatican II. All this, of course, has no philosophical nor even a theological foundation. The super dogma of Vatican II prevails over everything else. It annuls everything, cancels everything, but it does not permit itself to suffer the same fate. It is precisely this that confirms that Vatican II, although a legitimate ecumenical council, as I have affirmed elsewhere, is not like the others, because if this were the case, the councils and the magisterium that preceded it would have had to be held as equally binding, not only in words, preventing the formulation of the errors contained in, or implied in the text of Vatican II. D'Souza and Wynandi do not want to admit that the stra stratagem adopted by the innovators was very cunning. In order to gain approval for the change by those who thought they were dealing with a, a Catholic council like Vatican I, in an apparent respect for the norms, declared that it was only a pastoral council, not a dogmatic council. This allowed the Council Fathers to believe that the critical points would in some ways be settled, the equivocal points would be clarified, certain reforms would be considered in a more moderate sense. And while the opponents had organized everything down to the tiniest details, at least 20 years prior to the convocation of the Council, there were those who naively believed that God would prevent the coup of the modernists, as if the Holy Spirit could act against the subversive will of the innovators. A naivety into which I myself fell together with the majority of my brothers and prelates, who were formed and raised with the conviction that pastors, and the Supreme Pontiff first and foremost, were owed an unconditional obedience. Thus good Catholics, because of their distorted concept of absolute obedience, obeyed their pastors unconditionally. They were led to disobey Christ precisely by those who had made quite clear what their goals were. Even in this case, it is evident that assent to the conciliar magisterium did not prevent dissent from the perennial magisterium of the Church. It actually required such dissent as a logical and inevitable consequence. After more than 50 years, we still do not want to take note of an uncontestable fact, and that is that there was an intent to use a subversive method that up until then had been adopted in the secular sphere, applying it sin glossa to the religious and ecclesiastical. This method, typical of those who have, to say the least, a materialistic vision of the world, found the conciliar fathers who truly believed in the action of the paraclete unprepared, while the opponents knew how to falsify the tally in the conciliar commissions, weaken the opposition, obtain exceptions to established procedures, and present a norm as apparently harmless in order to later draw a disruptive and opposite effect from it. And the fact that the council took place in the Vatican Basilica, where the fathers in mitre in cope or in choral dress and John XXIII in tiara and mantle, was perfectly consistent with the orchestration of a scenography, specially designed to deceive the participants and indeed reassure them that in the end the Holy Spirit would remedy even the messes of subsistent in the blunders on religiosum libertatum. In this regard, I would like to quote an article that has appeared in the last few days at Settimo Cello entitled, Historicizing Vatican Council II, Here's How the World of Those Years Influenced the Church. Sandro Magister informs us of a study by Professor Roberto Perici on the Council, which I recommend reading in its entirety, but that can be summarized in these two quotes. The dispute that is inflaming the Church on how to judge Vatican II must not be only theological, because first of all, the historical context of that event must be analyzed, all the more so for a council that in setting its agenda declared it wanted to open up to the world. I know well that the Church, as Paul VI reiterated in Ecclesiam Swam, is in the world, but is not of the world. It has its values, behaviors, procedures that are specific to it, and that cannot be judged and framed with totally historical, political, worldly criteria. 
On the other hand, it must be added, neither is it a separate body. In the 1960s, and the conciliar documents are full of references to this effect, the world was moving toward what we now call integration, and it was already strongly influenced by the new mass media. Unprecedented ideas and attitudes were spreading very quickly, and forms of generational mimicry were emerging. It is unthinkable that an event of the breadth and relevance of the Council should have been taking place in the enclosure of St. Peter's Basilica, without measuring itself against what was happening. In my opinion, this is an interesting interpretive key to Vatican II, which confirms the influence of democratic thought at the Council. The great alibi of the Council was to present itself as collegial, an almost plebiscitary decision to introduce otherwise unacceptable changes. It was not, in fact, that the specific content of the Acts, nor their future significance in light of the spirit of the Council, that cleared up the heterodox doctrines that were already weaving their way through the ecclesiastical circles of Northern Europe, but the charism of democracy, made almost unconsciously by the entire world episcopate, in the name of an ideological subjection that at the time saw many exponents of the hierarchy as almost subordinate to the mentality of the age the idol of parliamentarianism that arose from 1789, which showed itself to be so effective in subverting the social order, must have represented for some prelates an inevitable stage in the modernization of the church, to be accepted in exchange for a sort of tolerance on the part of the contemporary world for what was still old and outmoded, and what it persisted in proposing. This was a very serious error. This sense of inferiority on the part of the hierarchy, this feeling of backwardness and inadequacy to the demands of progress and ideologies betrays a very deficient supernatural vision and an even more deficient exercise of theological virtues. It is the church that ought to attract the world to itself and, and change it, not vice versa. The world must be changed for Christ in the gospel, without our Lord having to be presented as a change maker, a la Che Guevara, and the church as a philanthropic organization more attentive to ecology than to the eternal salvation of souls. D'Souza affirms, contrary to what I have written, that I called Vatican II a devil council. I would like to know where he found these words of mine reported. I assume that this expression is due to his erroneous and presumptuous translation of the word conciliabolo, according to its Latin etymology, which does not correspond to the current meaning in the Italian language. From this erroneous translation, he infers that I have a position contrary to the Catholic faith on the authority of the ecumenical councils. If I had taken the time to read my statements on this topic, he would have understood that precisely because I have the greatest veneration for the authority of the ecumenical councils, for the entire magisterium in general, that I am not able to reconcile the most clear and orthodox teachings of all the councils up until Vatican I, with the equivocal and at times even heterodox teachings of Vatican II. But I don't seem to be the only one. Father Wanandi himself fails to reconcile the role of Vicar of Christ with Jorge Mario Bergoglio, was simultaneously both the holder and the demolisher of the papacy. But for D'Souza and Wynandia, against all logic, one may criticize the vicar of Christ, but not the council, or rather that council, and only that one. In fact, I have never encountered such solicitude in reiterating the canons of Vatican I when certain theologians speak of a resizing of the papacy, or of a synodal path, nor have I ever found so many defenders of the authority of the Council of Trent when the very essence of the Catholic priesthood is denied. D'Souza thinks that, with my letter to Father Wynandi, I looked for an ally in him. Even if that was the case, I do not think there would be anything wrong in that, as long as this alliance would have for its purpose the defense of truth and the bond of charity. But in reality, my intention was what I stated from the beginning, namely to make a comparison possible from which we reach a greater understanding of the present situation and its causes, in such a way that the authority of the Church can pronounce on it in its time. 
I've never allowed myself to impose a definitive solution, nor to resolve questions that go beyond my role as archbishop, and are instead matters that are the direct competence of the apostolic see. Thus, what Father D'Souza says is not true, and even less that which Father Wynandi incomprehensibly attributes to me, that I find myself in the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. I could perhaps believe their good faith if they both applied the same severity of judgment to their common adversaries and to themselves, something that unfortunately does not seem to me will happen. Father D'Souza asks, quote, Schism, heresy, devil's work, unforgivable sin. How is it that such words are now being applied to Archbishop Vigano by respected and careful voices? End quote. I think that the answer is obvious by now. A taboo has been broken, and a discussion about Vatican II that up until now had remained confined to very restricted areas of the ecclesial body has now begun on a large scale, and what most disturbs the supporters of the Council is the observation that this dispute is not about if the Council is open to criticism, but about what to do to remedy the errors and equivocal passages found in it. And this is an established fact on which no work of delegitimization can now be undertaken. Magister also writes this at Settimo Cielo, referring to the dispute that is inflaming the Church over how to judge Vatican II, and to the, quote, controversies that periodically reopen in the various Catholic media about the meaning of Vatican II and the link that exists between the Council and the present situation of the Church, end quote. Making people believe the Council is free from criticism is a falsification of reality, regardless of the intentions of those who criticize its ambiguity or heterodoxy. Father D'Souza claims further that Professor John Paul Meenan on LifeSite supposedly demonstrates, quote, the weakness in Archbishop Vigano's argument and his theological mistakes, end quote. I leave to Professor Meenan the burden of refuting my interventions on the basis of what I affirm and not what I do not say, but that is deliberately misrepresented. Here, too, how much indulgence is shown to the acts of the Council and how much implacable severity to those who point out the gaps to the point of insinuating the suspicion of donatism. As for the famous hermeneutic of continuity, it seems to me that it is clear that this is and remains an attempt, perhaps inspired by a somewhat Kantian vision of the affairs of the council. To reconcile a pre-council and a post-council has, has had never before been necessary. The hermeneutic of continuity obviously is valid and to be followed within Catholic discourse. In theological language, it is called the analogia fide, the analogy of faith, and it is one of the cornerstones to which the student of the sacred sciences must adhere. But applying this criterion to a hapax that, precisely based on its ambiguity, succeeded in saying or implying what it should have openly condemned does not make sense, because it presupposes as a postulate that there is a real coherence between the magisterium of the church and the quote-unquote magisterium, contrary to it, which is taught by the pontifical academies and universities by the Episcopal and Seminary Chairs, and preach from the pulpits. But while it is ontologically necessary that all truth be consistent with itself, at the same time it is not possible to fail in the principle of non-contradiction, according to which two mutually exclusive propositions cannot both be true. Thus, there can be no hermeneutic of continuity in supporting the need of the Catholic Church for eternal salvation, and at the same time with the, uh, the fraternity declaration and what it affirms which is in continuity with the conciliar teaching. It is thus not true that I reject the hermeneutic in itself, but only when it cannot be applied to a clearly heterogeneous context. But if this observation of mine turns out to be unfounded, and if they want to demonstrate the gaps in it, I will be quite happy to repudiate them myself. In the, at the end of his article, Father D'Souza asks provocatively, Priest, curialist, diplomat, nuncio, administrator, reformer, whistleblower, is it possible that at the end of it all, heretic and schismatic would be added to that list. 
I do not intend to respond to the insulting and gravely offensive expressions of Father Raymond, who is certainly not suited to a knight. I limit myself to asking him, to how many modernist cardinals and bishops would it be superfluous to ask the same question, already knowing that the answer is sadly positive? Perhaps before assuming schisms and heresies where there are none, it would be appropriate and more useful to fight error and division where they have nested and spread for decades. Sancte Pia uh, X, Ora Pro Nobis, 3rd September 2020, on the Feast of St. Pius X, Pope and Confessor. Signed, Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò.